Our featured author tonight, Jamal Green, is the Dwight Professor of Law at Yale University, at Columbia University, Columbia Law School, a graduate of Harvard College and Yale Law School, former law clerk to the Honorable John Paul Stevens. He was also a reporter for Sports Illustrated from 1999 to 2002. He is a man of diverse interests. He is joined by Randy Kennedy, my old friend, Michael, he, Randy is the Michael Klein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. Randy received his undergraduate degree from Princeton, his law degree from Yale University, attended Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, former clerk to Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. He is the author of six books, including Race, Crime, and the Law, for which he received the Robert Kennedy Book Award he is a practicing lawyer, has been. He's a member of the bars of the Supreme Court of the U.S., the District of Columbia. He's also a member of the American Philosophical Society, American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Tonight, they will discuss Jamal's new book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Welcome to you both. Glad you're here. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, good to be here. And thank you to Randy for agreeing to participate in this conversation. Uh, I thought I would just take a few minutes to uh, introduce the book. And I thought I would do that. I would start doing that. Here's the book. Uh, I'd start doing that um, by reading a little bit of it in an old, old fashioned way. Uh, and then I'll say a little bit about the, the, the general themes and the problem that I'm trying to address. So I'm gonna read just a couple of paragraphs. You have the right to remain silent and the right to free speech, the right to go out and the right to stay home, the right to worship and the right to doubt, the right against racial or sex discrimination and the right to hate, the right to marry and to have children, the right to divorce and to terminate a pregnancy, the right not to be tortured, the right to die, the right to vote and the right not to, the right to education and the right to homeschooling, the right to health and to refuse health insurance, the right to eat and to stop eating, the right to clean air and water, the right to smoke cigarettes, the right to buy what you need, the right to hoard, the right to work, the right to party. A performance artist named Karen Finley, best known for smearing chocolate over her naked body, claimed a right to National Endowment for the Arts funding. She lost. <clears throat> A conservative advocacy group called Citizens United claimed the right to use its corporate treasury funds to produce an anti-Hillary Clinton movie during her first presidential run. They won. Two Orthodox Jewish merchants in Philadelphia claimed the right to keep their store open on Sundays. They lost. Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker, claimed the right to refuse to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. He won. Two Missouri women, Nyoba Yang and Tamika Steigers, claimed the right to braid hair without completing a 1,500-hour training course and obtaining a cosmetology license. They lost. A group of neo-Nazis claimed the right to unite, armed with racist propaganda and semi-automatic rifles in a public park in Charlottesville, Virginia. They won. A Louisiana man named Gregory Sibley claimed the right to food, clothing, and shelter. He lost. A Long Island man, James Maloney, claimed the right to use his homemade nunchucks to teach the Shafan Ha Lavan karate style, which he made up to his children. He won. I'm gonna pause there 
um, there's more to the book, uh, but I'm going to pause there and uh, talk a little bit about the problem that I'm trying to address here. The book is about the confrontation between rights and pluralism. The basic question is how do you deal with rights conflict in a society that is beset with different values and different commitments? And to, to, to put the options that we have in a somewhat crude fashion, one option is to decide which values the constitution promotes and which values it doesn't, right? Protect the values that it promotes zealously. And uh, that's because the rule of law requires us to, pr pr to protect those rights zealously. And for the ones that the constitution doesn't particularly promote, leave those to the political process. Uh, that's the path that we've uh, chosen. That's the path that our, that our courts have chosen and that and we follow the court's lead. Um, and uh, for historically contingent reasons that we'll get into, uh, or we can get into, uh, that's where we find ourselves. And I, I think it's the wrong path. I think those of you who are lawyers, it'll seem intuitive um, that, that's, that that's what you should do, but it's the wrong path for at least three reasons and they're interconnected with each other. One of those reasons is it separates rights from justice. Um, the rights that we end up having depend uh, on a legalistic interpretation of particular constitutional categories. Right? Those categories might relate only incidentally or not at all to anyone's notion of justice. Um, why is there a right to, to pornography, uh, but not a right to be protected against violence? Neither of those things is in the constitution. Uh, second, uh, it disables us in the face of rights, the face of rights conflicts, which is something that we see um, everywhere. It forces us in the face of those conflicts to erase one right or another, and that ends up being alienating to one side or the other and or distorts our analysis. And think about affirmative action or abortion rights where uh, in, in the way that courts and the rest of us as well have framed those issues, we framed them, them as one right um, having to win out over another. Uh, third, it polarizes us, or at least it contributes to our polarization, our polarization because it, it turns political conflict, which should be resolved in the ways that resonate with political modes of conflict resolution into legal conflicts that end up being treated as binary or zero sum that require us to assign constitutional status to one party um, in a dispute over another. Um, this has the tendency of making us line up on one side or another. And so the law ends up reinforcing and raising the stakes of our political tribalism. What I suggest in the book is that instead of recognizing only a few rights and policing them in presumptively absolute ways, treating them strongly, we should be more generous in recognizing rights, uh, but but treat them pervasively as inherently limited and they're going to come into conflict and to try to resolve those conflicts at retail um, rather than at wholesale. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, rather than asking whether the constitution protects a particular right or not, um, we should focus much more on questions of what the government is trying to do or accomplish, what evidence it's relying on, 
how big of a burden it's imposing on the particular uh, parties whose interests are at stake, uh, how costly it would be to relieve that burden. Uh, is the burden on rights wildly disproportionate to the government's particular interests or objectives? Uh, and just to put some, I've been talking somewhat abstractly, just to put some, um, some texture into that abstract analysis, I mentioned Citizens United in the course of, in the book's second paragraph. Uh, that's a case that I think many of us, unless, you, unless you've studied that case in great detail, um, it's it, the, the way in which it's discussed and indeed the way in which the Supreme Court resolves it treats the conflict in Citizens United as one of corporate speech rights and government efforts to limit those corporate speech rights, in this case, the rights of Citizens United. And there were some claims made by the government in that case about political equality and the importance of limiting. So Citizens United was this ideological corporation that wanted to put out a, a move, this Hillary Clinton movie, anti-Hillary Clinton movie, and they are um, not allowed to do that within 30 days of an election or 60 days of a 30 days of a primary, 60 days of a general election. And uh, and the, the 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 court treats this as just a free speech issue, um, rather than taking seriously the claims of uh, the equality of citizens that the government's relying on in passing a law limiting corporate electioneering. Now. What's the, what's the difference between how the court treats it and how many of us treat it outside of courts and how um, the book would urge one to treat that conflict? Well, there, there, were, there were numerous factors in that case that actually made it a much more interesting case than if Citizens United had been General Motors, for example, or if Citizens United's speech were being cut off entirely. So what the law actually said was not Citizens United may not speak, but that Citizens United has to set up a separate political action committee. They can't use their general treasury funds. So shouldn't we want to know, for example, how burdensome is it to set up a, a political action committee? How burdensome is that on Citizens United speech rights? Well, that, that question is not asked in the case. We should want to know and care about whether Citizens United is an ideological or advocacy corporation as opposed to someone who makes widgets that doesn't seem relevant to the court's analysis in the case. We should wanna know if Citizens United is putting out TV ads, which at least at the time of the case um, involved a captive audience. You had to sit there and watch the ad as opposed to video on demand, which someone has to actually ask for in order to receive. Shouldn't that be a relevant difference, right? So um, those kinds of contextual differences um, or is it a closely held corporation or is it traded on the New York Stock Exchange? Shouldn't that matter? Um, those kinds of, of questions actually get us closer to consensus. If you, if you ask me, okay, you've got to choose the value of political equality or the value of corporate speech. You know, I'm, I'm left of center. I'm going to choose political equality. Someone who's right of center might choose corporate speech, uh, might. But if the question is, should we impose this particular rule on Citizens United, an ideological corporation within 30 days of an election? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> let's talk about that. Let's figure out where there's consensus. Let's figure out where we agree. I might end up agreeing with 
a, a right of center colleague. So this is just an example. I could perform a similar analysis in, on, on lots and lots of issues, um, which we can get into. But that's the that's the basic thrust of the book: is that it's destructive to talk about rights in the way that we tend to, uh, and that there are better ways. Uh, and with that, I will invite um, the very generous Randall Kennedy into the conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, congratulations on your book and um, all of your other writing. And I look forward to a nice discussion. Let me begin it like this. Um, your title is How Rights Went Wrong. And in the book, there, there, there's a lot that suggests that um, you believe that the, the courts have actually been leading us more and more astray. So when were rights handled rightly in America? Uh, never. <laughs> okay. So, so, and that, this is an important point, I think. Um, and I, I, and I, I'll concede that how rights went wrong sounds like they were right at some point and then went wrong. Uh, but um, this, this book is not uh, a piece of nostalgia <laughs> uh, and I'm not nostalgic. Uh, I do think that there is something in our founding, America's founding, that is worth recovering. Uh, and in particular, the founders of our nation uh, understood rights in communal terms. And when I say communal terms, I mean that uh, when, you know, when the Declaration of Independence says, uh, talks about unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, it's not talking about achieving those rights by having some judge go and protect, a federal judge swoop in and protect a minority against the majority. It's talking about the need for self-government in the very next sentence of the Declaration of Independence says, and for the, it's in order to achieve, to, to, to achieve those rights, that we that governments are instituted among men. So their understanding, and this is consistent with the Bill of Rights, was was the way you um, realize, the way a community realizes its rights is by um, having structures of self-government that will have some limits attached to them. But the way you work out those limits is through um, institutions of government, juries local legislatures. For them, that would have included the church, would have included the militia. Uh, today, we have a very different conception. We have a very different conception for very good reasons, because the founder's conception was exclusionary, right? So the communities, the self-governing communities of interest to them were communities of a propertied white men. Uh, and so that's certainly not a legitimate form of government or something we should want to go back to. But what we've been trying to do, I think unsuccessfully <laughs> over the subsequent 230 years is to integrate an, an understanding of self-government as being something that you, you do to protect your rights with an understanding that in some instances, that's not going to be sufficient, that you need judges or, or some other institution to um, protect the rights of those who are not being well integrated into the political life of the community. That's the lesson of the Civil War and, and the post 
Civil War constitutional amendments. So what happened is we ended up, I think for entirely contingent reasons in the, in the middle of the 20th century, understanding rights as having uh, one of two characters or rights claims as having one of two characters. Either someone was making an attack on what lawyers would refer to as social and economic legislation. So the ordinary, ordinary legislation of the state and you basically didn't have rights in that context. Or we're talking about civil rights, rights to religious freedom, paradigmatically black civil rights uh, as they were threatened uh, and eviscerated in the Jim Crow South. If that's your model, either you don't really have rights or you've got, or the government is terrorizing you. <clears throat> uh, that's a very kind of Manichaean frame for thinking about rights, but we haven't, we haven't gotten away from that frame, even though the kinds of claims we make about rights in the modern world, the post 1950s world, the 1960s and 1970s involves a, a much more complex rights environment where people are making claims about reproductive freedom. People are making claims about affirmative action. People are making claims against the government for the provision of governmental services. People are making claims in the criminal justice space that look very different from the claims made before that free speech claims look very different in the 60s and 70s than they did in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and so that so there's been a mismatch that we haven't quite corrected. Uh, and it's, and it, it threatens our ability to be a truly pluralistic community or society, I should say. Communities is too, too optimistic a word, but a, a truly pluralistic society in that we think that we have to choose which rights we have and which rights we don't. You know, obviously, rights is the, you know, the, the key word for your project. Beneath that key word, however, are, are two other words that come in a lot in your, in your remarks and, and in your book. And those other two words I have in mind are, on the one hand, law, and on the other hand, politics. In your introduction, you, you have the following two sentences. Um, I'll read them. The purpose of politics is to negotiate over disagreement. The purpose of law is to set the ground rules for that negotiation. Now, I, that, that really struck me. I put a you know, big check mark in the margin because people who grapple with law, particularly federal constitutional law, are often flummoxed by the distinction, trying to make a distinction between law and politics. And in those two sentences you do, I, I wanna press you, um, is there a distinction between the two? Can you really distinguish um, law and politics or is it the case that actually judges are just politicians with black robes who, you know, pursue their politics in a, you know, using different sources, using different vocabulary, but nonetheless are really pursuing a, a political project. Uh, good, so it's a, it's a fair challenge. And I think it is something that we've of course argued about for, for, for generations. Um, I, I'll, I'll push back a little bit on the frame of 
judges as politicians without necessarily pushing back on the idea that law and politics are largely um, continuous. And I'll, I'll use the word continuous rather than quite the same. Uh, it can be the case, so let's just concede for the moment that law and politics are the same thing. Uh, it can nonetheless be the case that the people charged with doing the thing called law uh, understand their role differently than the people charged with doing the thing called politics. And so I, I don't know that one needs to draw the distinction in order to distinguish between judges and politicians. Um, if I, you know, if if I tell you, you know, your job is to say whether something is reasonable or not, um, as opposed to deciding whether it's a good idea, um, you're, you're, you might make different decisions. And I, I do think that judges uh, often understand, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying obviously, but I do think that judges by and large often understand their job in that former sense rather than in the latter sense with lots of gradation baked into it. And that structure typically falls apart in highly fraught, highly politicized cases where it, where it becomes, it just be, because judges are human beings, uh, it becomes hard to maintain. Now, going back to law, the law politics distinction, and I do think that in constitutional law, and I'll distinguish that from other, other forms of law, in constitutional law, the kinds of questions that we ask about the thing that we tend to call rights, I think are and really should be um, continuous between politics and law. And why is that? Uh, the job of a judge is to resolve a dispute, at least in our system. The job of a judge is to resolve a dispute. I think we often think of the job of Supreme Court justices as, to, as being to declare, our, declare rights or interpret the constitution. That's the job of the judge. No, I think the job of the judge is to resolve disputes. And it may be that in the course of resolving disputes, the judge has to say something about the constitution. This is, if you go, would go back and read the canonical Marbury versus Madison, this is what John Marshall is saying in that case. But uh, the job of politics is also to resolve disputes at scale, um, but to resolve disagreement, right? It's a law and politics are both about disagreement. Uh, and the way we resolve disagreements, if we're not distracted by questions of, well, what rights do we have? Are we asked, well, how burdensome is this on this, is what's happening to this person? How burdensome is it? Can we really resolve that burden? Is there, is there some consensus here that we can work with to try to figure out how to solve this problem and narrow the range of disagreement, right? If we were having a negotiation Politically, that's the, those are the kinds of questions we would ordinarily ask. We wouldn't ask in an ordinary disagreement, well, does he have a right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very legalistic frame. Uh, and I, and I, I don't think there's any reason in the constitution why legal resolution of disagreements about rights should take any different form. Uh, in a case like in the, in, in, Let's take a race-based affirmative action case. Well, uh, an applicant who hasn't gotten into a particular institution is claiming that um, because that institution uses race, that that's a, violates their rights to equality. 
the school is claiming something very similar. <laughs> that if we don't use race, we are, I mean, that, when I say they're claiming, this is the substance of their claim. Without using race, we are treating people unequally. Okay, so now we've got a, we've got a disagreement. We, we don't have to decide, does the constitution protect the equality rights of one group or another? It, it protects both of them. All right, so let's get past that question and get, to, and get down to brass tacks, which are much more going to be much more contextual questions. So I think they're continuous. I think if, if the legal discourse treats um, questions that overlap with politics, in a way that um, allows them to be continuous, we can be having the same conversation, right? So the kinds of questions I want the government to ask is, am I respecting the rights of this person? And, and what that means is, am I, am I burdening them unnecessarily, <laughs> right? Uh, am I using a sledgehammer to get at and to, 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 to crush an ant, <laughs> right? Those are the kinds of questions that law should ask in my view. And, those are the kinds of questions that will then encourage political actors to act, ask when they engage in, um, in, in, in when they do, do lawmaking or, or, or interact with citizens in other ways. Um, one of the parts of your book that I um, most enjoyed were your, your commentaries on particular cases. And so I, I'd like to ask you about a couple of them. One is a case that uh, you did not mention, you, um, you mentioned with a lot of praise, Brown versus Board of Education. But the case I want to ask you about is not the, not Brown versus Board of Education itself, where the Supreme Court invalidated racial segregation in public and in, in public, you know, uh, primary and secondary schooling. I'm curious about your view of Brown too, the implementation because I would, I would think that, well, first of all, why don't you explain to the audience, for those who don't know what Brown 2 is, and second, I'd like, to, I'd like for you to comment on Brown 2, because I would think that the way that the court handled that would be very much in keeping with what you, how you think courts should behave. Though the reason I bring this up, as you know, is a lot of people are very critical of the way the Supreme Court actually handled Brown II. So right. go to it. Okay, so Brown Brown II is decided the year after Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education says separate but equal schools, separate, separate but equal schools are in fact unequal and so unconstitutional. But but there's an important question of what the court's remedy should be, because this is a this is not you know, Joe versus Jane in a contract dispute where you just, you know, give Blackacre to one or the other. This is, uh, this is, you know, 17 states and, uh, and an additional four where it was at the option of the county uh, that, that have entirely dual school systems. So they have, you know, they, they've got, uh, in order to remedy that, you're going to have to do a lot of work that courts aren't used to doing um, in terms of actually integrating entire bodies of citizens who live in, often live in different places into a single school system. And this, so Brown two is, what, what remedy are we gonna order? So one option could be, well, we're just gonna say the plaintiffs, you know, have to be admitted to a school. And then the next set of people who wanna be admitted to a school and aren't admitted, 
um, they can come before the court. You do it case by case. Um, uh, that would have been, I, I think the court and the litigants thought that would have been inefficient. So what the court ends up saying is, well, um, school systems you know, implement this in good faith. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but they say implement this in good faith. The, 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 the dreaded phrase is with all deliberate speed, um, which is a, a term that the court, courts had used for a long time before Brown uh, to refer to uh, with attention to administrative difficulties. Like how do you actually um, construct the right kinds of buildings? How do you rezone um, and so forth? And the, the, the reaction to Brown too, in, in a number of, especially Deep South, reaction to Brown in general, to a number of Deep South jurisdictions was to ignore it and resist it uh, in various ways. And so as, as Randy says, um, Brown too is often criticized as the court not being aggressive enough in the remedy that it was requiring. And so what he says is, you know, you seem to, to you, Jamal Green, you seem to be interested in a kind of dialogue between um, particular jurisdictions and courts uh, around things like administrative convenience. Um, I, uh, you know, not necessarily the you know, strong rights and strong remedies, paying attention to facts and so, and so forth. And so how do you feel about Brown too? And I guess I would say that uh, I, I, I think that the words of Brown too are, 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 are right, <laughs> um, which is to say the right response in a case like Brown is to pay some attention to the administrative difficulty of school integration. That if a jurisdiction is acting in good faith and it takes two or three or four years to fully integrate their school system, that's fine. Um, now that's not what happened. They were not acting in good faith. And it's important to recognize, and this goes back to Brown itself, that you know I'm not against rights. I'm not against strong rights. <clears throat> But I think strong rights should be attached to governments that are actually, it, you have to make a judgment that the government's actually acting in bad faith or pathologically or in a way that can't be trusted. I'm much more skeptical of strong rights in circumstances under which the court itself even believes the government is acting for legitimate reasons. Um, uh, so I think the, the Brown too is a question of, of and the, the implementation of Brown is a question of the political courage of judges. It's a question of, of whether jurisdictions are acting in, in good faith or not. Now, Randy could push back even more and say, well, that might be true in 19, easy in 1956, but what about when you get to the 1970s and you've got really difficult questions of, of some people are acting in good faith, some people are acting in bad faith. Um, even acting in good faith, they're gonna maintain school de facto segregation in, in lots of ways. Uh, and I think that's a hard problem for courts. And you know, when you get to the point where a good faith government is um, runs up against, against, uh, against serious political obstacles, well, that's, 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 a, that's it's time for politics, right? Courts are, are, are limited in how much they can do. I wanna to go to another case. So Brown versus Board of Education, probably maybe the most famous 
Supreme Court case of the 20th century, a, a challenger might be Roe versus Wade. And uh, in your book, you talk a good bit about Roe versus Wade and you compare uh, the United States Supreme Court's handling of Roe versus, of the abortion issue with the way that courts abroad, you particularly focus on Germany, well, you know, you, you talk about the way in which courts abroad have dealt with the abortion issue. And you suggest that actually courts abroad have handled the abortion issue better than the Supreme Courts, and than the way the Supreme Court handled it. Could you fill that out? And as you're filling it out, or, you know, at the, the question I have is: Are you, are you, are you, are you um, maybe criticizing the United States Supreme Court too much? Um, you, you, are you saying you, you say, gosh, you know, we have this incredible polarization over abortion, and you really point the finger at the Supreme Court. When I was reading, I was thinking, well, you know, there are other actors could have been pointing the finger at other places as well. Maybe other actors were more important than the Supreme Court. But in any event, why don't you unpack your discussion of abortion, the Supreme Court of the United States, and courts abroad? Great. So, so I'll, I'll just start by saying, you know, this is a chapter of the book, um, and it's, it's a complicated story. And so... Um, whatever you get out of my my synopsis, I, I'll, I'll just encourage you to go um, pick up the book and read chapter five and get a get a deeper dive. Uh, so I, I do think that the court's decision in Roe versus Wade, and particularly how the court styles its decision in Roe versus Wade, uh, contributes to a rupture in abortion politics in the U.S. There are lots of other things that also contribute to that rupture. So yes, I agree that there are other actors involved. There are, there's a lot of opportunism happening in the 1970s around this issue. But I, I, I do, there's a compare, the, the, the chapter compares what's happening in the US to what's happening in Germany at the same time. In the 1970s, abortion was a more controversial issue in Germany than it was in the United, the early 1970s, than it was in the United States. Today, it's a much, much more controversial issue here than it is there. And there are Supreme, landmark Supreme Court decisions that happen at approximately the same time in both places. Here in Roe versus Wade, there are abortion restrictions in most states, uh, particularly Texas and Georgia in Roe and its companion case, uh, Doe versus Bolton. Uh, and the court has to decide what do we do with these abortion restrictions in light of our recognition of the rights of women to some autonomy over their bodies? In Germany, uh, abortion is, is forbidden uh, until there's a, a, a law passed that liberalizes access to abortion. And there, the Christian Democrats bring a lawsuit saying that that liberalization law is not respectful of the value of fetal life. Right? So that, that's something that they say has a constitutional value. And so, uh, coming from very different perspectives, these two cases, opposite perspectives in some ways. And the German court from a much more um, conservative perspective saying, and the, they win by the way. So the German court does invalidate the law. It says it doesn't respect fetal life enough. Seems startlingly conservative from the perspective of US politics. 
But what the court says in the course of doing that is, look, the government has to pursue all of the constitutional values that we think are important, including the value of life, and that, that value of life extends to fetal life, and including the value of, of uh, the right of personality, which is the equivalent of the autonomy interests of, of women. And each side of the of this dispute has to be has to show some respect to the other side. That's the when I say ground setting ground rules for politics. That's basically what the court does. And so from the from the pro-abortion rights perspective, but how do we show respect for fetal life? Well, they say you know, the way to show respect for fetal life is to is to give women choices. If women have genuine choices, uh, and they're going to get cho genuine choices if they get good prenatal care, if they get good access to childcare, if they get employment guarantees, if they have a social safety net, then they're gonna make choices that result in fewer abortions. So, so that's the way that we can show respect for fetal life. From the other perspective, you know, how do we um, give something to women's autonomy? Well, maybe we should think about what kinds of restrictions are available in the first trimester differently than later in the pregnancy. And so there's a lot of focus on well, can we impose um, uh, certain kinds of restrictions in the second trimester, but not in the first trimester? And there's a, what ends up happening is there's a, a big political compromise around that set of interests and they're trading off um, those particular interests so that what results is a political bill called the group bill uh, because all of the parties along the entire spectrum contribute to this political negotiation and a serious dialing down of the temperature around abortion politics. Uh, now, lots of people are gonna disagree with the outcome, right? So the, the chapter is not about, this is the right way to do abortion regulation. It's about, this is the right way to do constitutional democracy, is you set boundaries for political conversation around, around our values conflicts. In the US, in Roe, very conspicuously, Justice Blackmun in Roe versus Wade says, um, considers the question of whether fetal life has any constitutional value and says it doesn't and says it doesn't because the case would fall apart. We can't recognize the rights of women over to, to autonomy over their bodies if we also recognize the right to fetal life. So they, he sees it as a binary and that actually ends up causing a big cleavage in the anti-abortion movement that radicalizes it and makes political compromise in the US very difficult. It is a complicated story there is much more to it than what's going on at the Supreme Court. Totally agree. Um, but what the what the what what I do think the chapter demonstrates is that there is a way of it's not it's not that this issue is impossible to deal with or that it, it inevitably results in apocalyptic political conflict. Um, courts had a very important role to play in dialing down the temperature of a very difficult political controversy, uh, and that and I think in a constitutional democracy that's the role courts should be playing. Um, many of the cases that you talk about are Supreme Court cases, but not all. And in your last chapter of the book, uh, you talk about, well, you talk about your workplace. You talk about the question of speech on campus and how that has become a real you know, that's, that's, that's a real um, volatile subject. And you discuss a case from a couple of years ago, the, you know, in the, the Auburn case, 
I'd like for you to first just, you know, tell us, you know, what that case was about and um, what your view of the handling of the case by the judge was. What, you know, you, you tell us what, how the judge handled the case, because I got to be, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I disagree with you strongly. Uh, you really criticized the judge. And I think that the judge was right. And so first, what was the case about? Why do you criticize the judge? And I think that you can imagine why I disagree with your resolution of the, of the of, you know, your view of how the case should have been resolved. So any of it, go at that. Yeah, so, so I, I'll, and I'm not surprised that, that you disagree with me about, about this. So, so this is a case in, at Auburn where a, a, a guy, and it's not even a student or, or anyone connected to Auburn's community, comes from, he lives in Georgia, doesn't even live in Alabama. Um, he's like the booker for, for Richard Spencer, who's this white nationalist, um, who goes around talking on, in pub, before public audiences, including on college campuses, and this guy who is also a white nationalist from Georgia goes to Auburn, rents out a, a space on Auburn's campus, uh, an auditorium to, for Richard Spencer to speak. Students at Auburn, um, uh, African-American students and others protest and say, we don't want this person to speak on our campus. And the, the university uh, folds and says, okay, we're actually gonna um, kick him off the campus. This guy sues on Richard Spencer's behalf. Uh, and the district judge um, takes the case, says Auburn is a public university and, um, and has restricted the speech of someone and has done it on the basis of that person's viewpoint, right? Because if, if Richard Spencer were a radical egalitarian and he came onto campus and then a bunch of white supremacists objected and said, we don't like equality, they wouldn't have done it, right? They would have let him speak, right? So that is viewpoint discrimination. Uh, and so he dutifully recites a bunch of Supreme Court cases that says that then there gets, therefore gets the highest level of scrutiny and you know, fear of their audience's reaction is not a good enough reason to, to restrict someone's speech. So my, my objection to, and I, 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 just as Randy strenuously agrees with the judge, I strenuously disagree with the judge uh, in that particular case, not because I don't think freedom of speech is important, uh, but because I don't think that this is, I so this is a very different case than if the police showed up and were to arrest Richard Spencer because they don't like his speech. And so I think that's the relevant question is the set of questions are uh, contextual. This is a university. Universities have students, they have a community, their job is to educate those students and that education involves curating what the students are exposed to, curating um, in some cases what the students are allowed, how the students are allowed to speak themselves, right? This is a very particular institutional environment and it's one that has some constitutional protection, right? The university itself has, uh, has academic freedom rights in fact, our earliest cases on academic freedom, Sweezy versus New Hampshire was about the rights of the university faculty and administrators um, to, to make their own choices about how to educate their students, right? So those, are, those, value, so those values are important and they are very important 
in the context of pluralistic communities on college campuses, um, universities being able to make choices about who they allow on their campus and who they don't allow on their campus. There are also free speech rights at issue. But here, again, getting contextual about it, the cost uh, in free speech terms is minimal to my, to my mind. This is an outsider to the campus. He's not part of the community. He has many outlets in which he can speak. He's not being sanctioned in any way, not being punished in any way. Um, and so you've got a clash of values. Those values are of constitutional significance and they're on both sides of this question. And I think they are extremely significant for the university whose core mission is to educate and to curate the information available to its students. And it's minimal for Richard Spencer who could go a few blocks down the street off of Auburn's campus, go to the park, give the same speech and would not be bothered. Um, so uh, so it's, it, this, is a, this is a great example because it's a core example of the ways in which uh, a standard American approach to, to freedom of speech, I think flattens very contextually difficult questions into these Manichaean questions of is there is someone's free speech right violated or not? Uh, violating a free speech right has a, has is a long spectrum, uh, and this is the, the the tip of one end of that spectrum. Um, we've got questions coming, but I want to before I turn to the questions, I want to push back on you a little on this last one. First, um, in your introduction to the case, you you said. And I think you said the university folded to the protest, suggesting that, you know, it, it'd be one thing if they were curating, if they were engaged in curating, if they were saying as an educational matter, we have, you know, we want to protect our environment or something. But just suppose it was mere capitulation. And just suppose, as I think it's probably the case, there were some members of the Auburn student body who did want to hear this, you know, terrible Spencer talk. Don't, you know, what about that? What about those two considerations? Well, I think universities, and again, this is part of the, part of what we mean by academic freedom is that universities get to make those choices. Uh, and I mean, capitulation, uh, are there circumstances under which I could imagine a court forcing uh, a university uh, to host a speaker against the wishes of that university? I'd have to think carefully about it, but you know, students alerting a university to, um, uh, to uh, the presence on campus of people who are holding discriminatory views about them is something universities, I think, are entitled to take extremely seriously. They are in local parentis for the students in their care. And that I, so I, 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 um, I, I don't know that I'm able to make a fine distinction between capitulation and a you know, a different kind of judgment in a case like this. If Spencer were a student on campus, I think it's a much closer case um, or, or invited by a student group, although I still think that'd be a, 
uh, something the university gets to make choices about. You know, we tolerate that kind of, and different universities would make different choices in, in, in this circumstance. And, you know, we tolerate that kind of experimentation in other contexts. We think that's something to be celebrated. Um, uh, why not this one? Would we be better off without courts empowered to nullify legislation? I, I don't think so. Um, you may detect in the book some sympathy for a kind of purely political constitutionalism, mm -hmm. but there is a, you know, I, I, again, I do think that there is a role for courts to play. I do think that there are times when, uh, when either, either, either through act, either because they're acting in bad faith or because they've been extremely clumsy, um, legislatures and executive officials, um, go too far or don't respect the rights of some particular constituency. So I, I talk about Berkeley and its role in the free speech movement in the 1960s. Well, that there, the rule there was when, when Berkeley tried to shut down student speech on campus was no one, no student may engage in any political discussion at all. Well, that's a very different kind of burden than a burden on an off-campus speaker invited by someone outside of the university community to use university space to speak to students. Um, question from our audience. Aren't politics all about power and law all about containing that power? Um, well, uh, I, 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 no, I don't think so. Um, I think that, um, I think there's a way of understanding politics as purely about power, but I use politics in a, in a different way than electoral politics necessarily. I mean, there's gonna be a winner or a loser to an election, but politics is, it also happens in our day-to-day -day interactions with, with each other. You know, we're part of a political culture where we form opinions by speaking to each other. We resolve disagreements by persuading each other one way or the other. You can, that can break down. So if there is no political culture or it's, or it's a purely agonistic political culture, uh, and that's the end of democracy when that happens. Um, but but politics, I think I think of as a much broader concept that also includes electing people to exercise power, right? But but when I say politics, when I talk about politics, I'm talking about uh, I'm talking about political culture, um, not about elections. Okay. Um, does your view of the role of judges as the resolver of disputes change the role of precedent? in our legal system? I don't, well, I, I'm not opposed, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't, there's no necessary relationship between the things I say in the book and having a system of precedent. Uh, I do think that, you know, the, the, there's a crude way of describing, a very crude way of describing what the book is about, uh, which would say, I'm much more interested in when we're talking about rights conflicts in standards rather than rules, um, which is to say, I don't want judges to make a decision that purports to resolve all cases that are in the general ballpark of the case before it. Uh, I think that that is, shows a lack of humility and I think that alienates people. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, I want cases to be much more factually specific and to change 
when the facts of the case change in relevant ways. So precedent is very important in my understanding of what judges are supposed to do. Uh, but I, I, I guess I would like to see them um, understand those precedents in more particular, particularized ways. A member of our audience says that uh, uh, she's totally befuddled and horrified by the Supreme Court's uh, holding in Citizens United. She'd like to know, do you think it will be eventually overturned? I, I have no idea whether Citizens United will be overturned, but I will, here's what I'll say for Citizens United. And I'll, and, you know, I'll try to model what I'm arguing in the book, which is that there are, there are elements of Citizens United that I can get behind. Um, it's not what the court says. The court describes the case in very simplistic terms. But I think that an ideological nonprofit that wants to put out a movie about a political candidate in an election, right before and during an election in which that person's running, should be able to do that, generally speaking. Now, the difference between general treasury funds and separate political action committee, I'd, I'd want to get into that, those questions and see, see if it, how, how burdensome it actually is, which the court doesn't, doesn't, doesn't um, question at all. But I think Citizens United has a claim. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should extrapolate from that claim that all corporations under all circumstances must be able to speak in all ways, um, uh, which, which the court almost, that's almost verbatim what the court says in Citizens United. Uh, so so I, I want to, and I, I think that, you know, people who agree with Citizens United um, and they and I can have a conversation once we start asking real questions about, about facts, as opposed to, you know, deciding whose values are right or not. I think that we're um, soon going to get the hook uh, while we have a minute remaining. Are there any other, are there, are there you know, you, you, you wrote this book, you probably finished writing the manuscript a couple of months ago. Are there any revisions that you would make in light of the reviews you've gotten in light of the discussions that you've had with people since the book was published? Oh, gosh. Um, so I, I finished the manuscript, um, finished probably last summer, so, so a few months ago. Um, in response to comments, I mean, look, any, I, anytime you write something and sit with it for a few months, there, you know, you always read it and say, ah, oh, you know, I would have phrased that a little bit different. So there, there are stylistic changes I would have made. There are things I would have made more clear. The introduction would have been shorter, I think, if I were writing it today. Um, uh, I would have said probably more about the pandemic. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to date the book too much, right? But, mm -hmm. but it's such a, there, there, there are, there are, there's a rich set of case studies that one could, whether it's masking or vaccination policy, or um, there is a little bit of discussion of of rationing of ventilators in the in the book, but I probably would have said a little bit more about public health as a as a very interesting canvas for talking about some of these issues. Um, so I guess that's where I would um, where I would, those are probably the changes I'd make. Yeah, you know, gosh, um, this past summer, with respect to the the uh, conflicts between, for instance, the governor of New York 
right, where you are. And the courts would have been, that, that's right. Uh, that, that would have been, it seems to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, religious freedom. Yes. And I'll, I'll just say that I, you know, I think some of my views in, in clashes between houses of worship and governors during the pandemic would, mm -hmm. would probably horrify some of my, my progressive friends. So, um, you know, I, 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 do, I do think there's, um, because I think religious freedom is a real right, um, I, I do think that there were some ham-handed policies that courts were right to push back on, but mm -hmm. that's maybe for another day. Mm -hmm. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for this discussion. And thank you so much for your book. And uh, we'll all be looking forward to seeing future writings from you, Professor Green. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to, to engage with the work so thoughtfully and the same to everyone in the audience. Absolutely.